Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our summer sermon series, Hometown Exiles. We now begin Peter's very specific ways of how a Christian should live. And we start with a very timely topic on a Christian's response to human authorities. You are listening to Hometown Exiles, Submission to Human Authorities by Rev. Peter Yonker. We continue our sermon series, uh, Hometown Exiles, which is based on the book of 1 Peter, Peter's first letter. And um, today we will be studying uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. We'll read together 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. And I just want to warn you, and you'll, you'll know when I read it why that's true. The topic we're talking about today is uh, quite important and quite difficult. So today's sermon will be a little longer than usual. So get yourself another peppermint or pour yourself another cup of coffee if you need to. Um, But we need to talk about this and it's just going to take a little bit longer than usual. Before I read the passage, let me remind you where we've been. So far at the beginning, uh, in the first two sermons and at the beginning of 1 Peter, Peter's been telling us mostly about who we are in Christ Jesus. And he's telling us that when we are in Jesus, we are completely new. Newness. We're new as individuals. We're given new birth into a living hope, reborn into living hope individually. But also we're new as a community, okay? We are a chosen people and a holy nation together. So incredible newness individually and as a community So much newness that we feel like, and we actually are, hometown exiles in this world. We we, we don't feel quite at peace with the world around us. Up till now, Peter's just been telling us in general terms how hometown exiles live. Now he's going to get specific. Now he starts to go through very specific areas of life and saying in those areas, this is how you live, this is what you do. And it's really interesting to see the first area that he chooses to talk about. Listen. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, okay, there's that image again, of hometown exiles, foreigners. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day that he visits us. And now the specific instruction. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for doing evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. 
So when it comes to living life as uh, hometown exiles among in the world, as God's chosen people in the world, what's the first thing that Peter wants to talk to us about? He wants to talk to us about international relations. He wants to talk to us about how we as a holy nation should deal with the nation that surrounds us. And it's not surprising that that should be the first thing that Peter should want to tell this church about. Because we know that that holy nation, that church, um, was having difficult relations with the governing authorities that surrounded them. We don't know if they were subject to complete persecution already, but we do know that they were certainly under duress. They were economically marginalized. They were socially marginalized. And they were the subject of malicious talk. So the issue about how to deal with the authorities who were, who were coming against them would have been a very pressing issue for them. I think we can agree that it's also a very pressing issue for us. How do we relate to our governing authorities in times such as these? In this time of extreme political division, in this time where the rules of governing authorities directly affect what we are able to do as a congregation, that question of what it means to relate to the nation around us, to our governing authorities, is very pressing for us too. That's what we're going to talk about today, ready or not. And I can't say everything there is to say about this issue, believe me, but we will look throughout Scripture and we will look at 1 Peter 2 and we will try to get a better understanding about who we are as Christians before the authorities that God has put around us. And the first thing we need to say, the first thing we need to see as Christians is that when you belong to Jesus, you are the citizen of a different kingdom. When you belong to Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you serve King Jesus and your ultimate allegiance is to him and to his kingdom. Now, most of you know that I grew up in Canada, right? And, and most of you know that I, I still love Canada because I do love Canada. I've been gone a long time. I've lived here a long time. I'm an American citizen now, but I, you know I still love Canada. I, I love the Canadian Rockies. I love the lakes of northern Ontario, beautiful lakes. I love the Montreal Canadiens. I love Anne of Green Gables. I love all those Canadian things. I'm very proud of them. But I ended up in this country because when I went to seminary, um, after I got out of seminary, I got a call, and I got a call to a church in Grand Rapids. And after I'd served there for a few years, um, I'd go home to visit to Canada, and some of my friends there and some of my family members would say to me, Peter, when are you going to come back to Canada? The true north, strong and free. When are you going to come back and live here? This is your home. And what I would always say to them is, you know what, guys, when, when I'm taking a call, the border doesn't matter that much to me. I am, and I've always been taught as a Reformed Christian, that I'm first of all a citizen of the kingdom of God. So when I decide where I should go with a call, what I'm looking at is, what are the needs of the church that's calling me, and what are my gifts? And do my gifts match that church? So whether they're in Canada or the United States, wasn't that important? I'm a citizen of the kingdom. When I take my marching orders, I'm not looking at Ottawa. I'm not looking, first of all, at Washington. I'm looking, first of all, at the new Jerusalem and to my ascended king, Jesus. 
When you belong to Jesus, you're not first of all an American. You're not first of all a Canadian. First of all, a citizen of the kingdom of God. In Christ, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. All are one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this kingdom citizenship thing, this primary allegiance thing, is not some minor theme in the New Testament. Okay? It's pervasive. When Jesus comes, he comes to preach the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is like. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That kingdom theme is also in Jesus' name, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name Mary and Joseph gave him. Christ is his title. Christ means anointed. Anointed as what? Anointed as our prophet, priest, and king, our Lord. That citizenship thing is made explicit in Paul, Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship, says Paul, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And finally, you sense this distinction in the passage you just read, our passage. Because when Peter tells us to submit to the governing authorities, he tells us to do it for the sake of the Lord, right? Don't submit to the governing authorities because they're so awesome and they're so just and they're so good. Submit to them for the Lord's sake because he is your true king. We are kingdom citizens first. Now that doesn't mean you don't love your country. You just love it in proper proportion. It's the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is your love for your country, its culture, its history, and its people. Nationalism is when you think that your country is the one specially chosen by God above all the other countries, that your country is the holy nation that God is going to use to accomplish its purposes. Patriotism is good. By all means, wave the flag. Sing the national anthems with tears in your eyes. Serve and love your country. Go into government, work in politics, go into the military, serve in the military. There are many members of this church who serve proudly and in very dangerous and difficult situations in the military for their country. There's a wall in our church just over there, which lists people who have died in the service of their country. Patriots, we honor them. Patriotism, good. Nationalism, when you think that your nation is the holy nation, exclusive of the other nations of the world, when you think your national leaders are God's chosen ones in a way that the rest of the leaders of the world are not chosen, that's the dangerous stuff. When you think that fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, is no different than fixing your eyes on the flag, that's nationalism. And it's dangerous. It's idolatry. Someone, a couple months ago, sent me a sermon by Alistair Begg. I don't know if you know that name. He's a well-known, reformed preacher. He grew up in Scotland. He has a Scottish accent. Um, but he's been preaching mostly in America. He's a conservative, reformed preacher. 
And this sermon that was sent to me was called Strangers and Exiles. It actually got its title from our passage. But the main text of his sermon was not our passage, it was Daniel. And Daniel is a really good example of how a hometown exile still honors God in the midst of their exile. Because when Daniel was in Babylon, right, he served that country. He worked for the good of the city. He worked for Nebuchadnezzar. He tried to make Babylon flourish. That's what he did. But as he did it, he always knew who his true Lord was. It was God. He always had his eyes on Jerusalem, on the temple, on his true Lord. In this sermon on Daniel, Beg was talking to a group of business people, he says, and he was doing what preachers often do. He was talking about a lot of the moral decay and decay in our culture and all the bad things that were happening. And as he was describing all these bad things, as he was describing all the moral decay, he says he could feel that the people in the congregation, the people in his audience were leaning forward and waiting for him to say that there were political reasons for this decay and waiting for him to offer political solutions to all these problems. Here's how he describes this moment. Now I'm going to read right from his sermon. I could read people's eyes, he said, and they were coming along and coming along, and they're looking forward to the punchline. They're looking forward to me engaging in some political explanation. How disappointed they all were when I explained to them that neither the United States nor the United Kingdom, where he's originally from, are the people of God. We are all Babylon. We are in the world, represented as Babylon, confronted by the kingdom of this world as members of the kingdom of another world. Political affiliation, as significant as it is, is not the issue when it comes to these matters. The matter is God's kingdom and God's plan. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has called out a people for himself. Throughout the world today, the Spirit of God has been moving and the ascended King Jesus reigns. And God is accomplishing his purposes in this world. And he is not uniquely concerned with Brexit. He is not uniquely concerned with the United States elections. He is supremely concerned with his church. We are part of a different kingdom. We serve a different king. And our hope is not in who will win the next election. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the church is the place where that kingdom vision and that sense of kingdom citizenship is, is proclaimed. And not just proclaimed, the church is the place where that, that identity as kingdom people is formed. When we participate in the life of the church, when the church becomes the center of our life, we understand that we are first and foremost kingdom citizens. When the church just becomes a sideshow in our life, something we do once in a while, that kingdom vision fades and things like nationalism and all other kinds of isms began to take place. Like Daniel in Babylon, we work for the good of the city, 
We work for the flourishing of our society. We do it as doctors and lawyers and plumbers and preachers and governmental workers and soldiers. And whatever it is that we're called to do, we work for the flourishing of a society. But we do it as people whose king reigns in the new Jerusalem, whose king will someday return to make all things new. Until that great day, how do we relate to the governing authorities? Peter tells us, submit to them for the Lord's sake. Submit to every human authority for the Lord's sake. Wow. How do we understand this? There are two sides to this command. On the one hand, Peter is clearly calling for us to put up with a lot of things that we don't like, things that make us uncomfortable for the sake of our civic duty, for the sake of getting along in this community. And if you want an example of how true that is, think of this. Okay? Peter calls us in this passage to submit, and honor, to, the, to submit to and honor the emperor. Well, who was the emperor when first Peter was writing? People argue about when Peter was written. I've taken a relatively traditional conservative view, which is that it was in the early 60s AD. Who was emperor in 63 AD? Nero. Now, did Nero like the church? No, quite the opposite. He was an enemy of the church. He persecuted the church. The persecution was not empire-wide, but in Rome, he was very cruel to Christians. He killed a lot of them. He was no friend to Christ's church, and yet, Peter says, honor the emperor. So clearly, Peter means for us to submit to things that we don't particularly like for the sake of our civic duty, for the sake of our Lord. That on the one hand. On the other hand, there are also clearly limits to our submission. Our true Lord is, is the one in heaven. And, and so sometimes human authority and, and the authority of our Lord will, will come into such conflict that we have to resist. Think of Daniel again. Daniel works for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He works in the government. He works for the flourishing of the city. But when Nebuchadnezzar says, or actually it was Darius, when Darius says that uh, he can't pray anymore, Daniel, you got to bow down to this 10-story golden image when the, when the music starts playing. Incidentally, that 10-story that idol that Darius made, that was, a, that, was a national, <clears throat> that was an idol to nationalism. That was a, an idol to the power of Babylon. you got to worship the power of Babylon. Daniel knew that that wasn't something he could do. He resisted. Without fanfare without angry Facebook posts or a lot of yelling and screaming, he went to his room and prayed towards Jerusalem as he always had done. Sometimes the authorities must be resisted. If you want to understand this issue, you have to understand that in Scripture there are two kinds of texts. There are submission texts and there are resistance texts, and they're held in tension. Submission texts are texts like ours, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13. Submit to the authorities, they're instituted by God. The resistance texts are things like Daniel that I just read, also Revelation 13. In Revelation, uh, the church is now not just slightly resisted, now the church is undergoing full-flown persecution. And so in Revelation 13, 
the Roman establishment is portrayed as the beast out of the sea who utters proud blasphemies against the people of God and tries to destroy them. And now it's not an appointed agent of God, it's something to be resisted. Another resistance text, Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just gotten out of jail and they're standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, human authorities. And the human authorities say to Peter and John, you are not allowed to preach or teach about Jesus anymore. And do you remember what Peter and John say? Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? Do you hear the tension? Submit to the authorities. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him? This calls for wisdom. In specific situations like we're dealing with now, it's not always so clear what to do. I know there's some people out there telling you that it's crystal clear what we Christians need to do. I beg to differ. This calls for wisdom. This is not easy. Here is what I do think is clear. In our passage and in the rest of the New Testament, when we do resist, when we refuse to submit, we do throw in a positive, godly way. It takes the form of good lives lived among the pagans. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they malign you, they see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day he returns. The way we resist is speaking the truth honestly, witnessing, speaking about justice, and living good lives out there in the world. In one sense, the Bible is a deeply revolutionary book. Bible changes everything. When Jesus comes, he calls the world to repent. Greek word for repentance, metanoia, literally means turning around, revolution, turn around, repent. And at the end of Revelation, the voice thunders from the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Everything changes in Jesus. So in that sense, the Bible is a deeply revolutionary book. But often when we think of revolution, when we think of that R word, we think of people shouting in the streets and setting things on fire and guns and riots and terrible things. In that sense of revolution, the Bible is not a revolutionary book. Jesus was not that kind of revolutionary. Some people wanted him to be. They wanted him to throw out the Romans and return greatness to Israel. That's what they asked for. But Jesus resisted that. He changed everything. He brings justice, but he doesn't do it in that way. He does it in a much slower way and in a much deeper way. He doesn't just change administrations and policies. He changed hearts as well. Daniel wasn't that kind of revolutionary. When Daniel came and and realized that he had to pray to God in resistance to Darius, He didn't start a rally in the streets. He didn't say, down with the emperor. He just went to his room and prayed. And even in Revelation 13, when the empire is portrayed as a beast out of the sea and is uttering proud blasphemies and is is coming against God's people, what is the church called to do? How is the church called to resist? This calls, verse 10, for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. 
There's plenty of violence in Revelation, right? There's plenty of everything being overturned and bloodshed as the, the enemies of God get their just desserts. But how much of that is perpetrated by people? None of it. All the making things right, all the violence, all the overturning, it's God's judgment. What people are called to do in the book of Revelation is watch and pray and testify. Live good lives among the pagans so that they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Recently, some members of this church volunteered to help out on very short notice to clean out the basement of another member of this church who suddenly had a crisis and needed a lot of junk cleaned out of their basement. I won't say who the helpers were or who the person in need was. We'll keep this anonymous. But I know that on very short order, 10 people were brought together. They went over to that house, and in a the morning, they cleaned out that house, the basement, and they put stuff in a dumpster, and, and they did wonderful work in the service of God. I also know that those 10 people were from all parts of the political spectrum. There were Democrats, Republicans, people in between, all down the line. But that day, the work they did was not about where they were on the political spectrum. It was about who they were in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if there were any Grand Rapids pagans watching them as they cleaned out their basement. But if there were... I imagine the conversation went something like this. Hey, I know that woman carrying that couch over there. She, she, she's, she's a Facebook friend of mine. She, she's a real Democrat. I've seen her posts. Oh, really? I know the, the guy at the other end of the couch. He's a staunch Republican, staunch with a capital S. Huh. Look at them working together. I wonder what's going on there. Yeah, I think it's a Jesus thing. I, I think that's their church that's helping them out. Huh. I'm not much of a church person, but uh, I got to admit, it's nice to see people working together. Kind of gives you hope. We would say it kind of gives you a living hope, a kingdom hope. Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they malign you, they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen. Lord God, you know how perplexing this topic is for us, how frustrated we are sometimes, how divided we feel about these issues, how much fighting there is, how much we worry about the state of our church and the state of our country. Thank you, Lord, that here is a place where we can look beyond all that and we can see you on your throne and we can see you as Lord and name you as Lord and know that in you, you can carry us through all this and make all things new. Until that day, help us to witness for your righteousness and witness to your truth and witness to your justice and help us to do such good deeds that you are glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.